Welcome to the Enrooted Podcast, the landowner podcast to provide you with inspiration, new perspectives, and quick tips for your forest management and land ownership journey. So it is November, which means I'm sure all on your mind is about Thanksgiving, and either you are trying to cram in as much work as possible before the Thanksgiving holiday breaks, or perhaps you are completely consumed with trying to figure out where you're going for the holidays, whose house, when you're going, how you're going, how you're going to be packing the kids, who's cooking what at what time, and trying just to plan out all of those different logistics. It's a beautiful and yet so stressful time at the exact, you know, same time. Um, but what it brings to mind is just this topic of family. And when it comes to family, the thing that always comes to my mind's eye is about succession. Because of course, this is when I get most women that come and approach me, join my programs, join my trainings, pick my brain, is when they've just inherited land or when they're about to pass it on to the next generation. It's usually one of those two scenarios. So I thought what would be a good idea for the rest of this month is to be focusing on succession. And it's gonna be a three-part series, so this is going to be part one. And this is gonna be really the very first thing you and your family have to kind of figure out. Now, this is gonna be applicable whether you are planning for succession for the next generation or if you have just inherited land. So it's just gonna be depending on maybe what perspective that you are taking, but I'm gonna be speaking on from the perspective that you have inherited land and you are trying to decide how to move forward. All right, so today's part one is you've inherited land and you're trying to decide to sell or keep that land. So what are the things that you really need to think about first when deciding to sell or to keep your land? And of course, I'm going to be bringing in Proverbs today because we all know that Proverbs is one of my favorite books. It's just completely full of wisdom, which is kind of why it's called the book of wisdom. And so I'm going to be referencing Proverbs 19 verses two through three real quick where it says, desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? A person's own folly leads them to ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. All right, and so in simple terms, what we see here is, you know, desire without knowledge is not good and how much we will miss the way because we do not sit kind of try to get some discernment, try to really think these through. And this happens so often when it comes to land. You've inherited land, it's so overwhelming, you're maybe in the middle of some grief periods and you just simply don't know what to do. And so you make a decision without fully grasping what you are doing, without fully thinking through the consequences, whether it is to keep or to sell your land. And when we do these things, no matter what our desire is, when we don't kind of do our own due diligence, when we don't wait out a certain amount of time to let our emotions settle out a little bit more, we do tend to make hasty poor decisions that we will later on regret. And this is true for selling the land especially, but also true for making decisions to not sell the land at a particular time period. And that's why in verse three, it says a person's own folly leads them to ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. And so when we make these decisions, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I tend to not want to take accountability for my poor actions at times. Now, eventually I do. I will say that. But my knee-jerk reaction is just to be like, oh my goodness, why has this happened to me? Or of course this is happening because Susie down the road did this or Cousin Joe said that or, you know, the mailman came late. If he was five minutes earlier, I wouldn't have run that red light and so forth. 
And this is again true when we make major decisions. Sometimes when we don't think it through, we don't do our due diligence. We're hasty. We're probably emotional, especially if it comes to inheritance and we are dealing with this transition period is what I call it. And so we make a bad decision that we probably shouldn't have made. And it has some type of consequence. And yet we are then going to blame everybody else. Is that right? No, but it is human nature. I do it. You do it. We all do it, whether we admit it or not. And so hopefully this podcast will help bring some things back into perspective. And so we can avoid trying to rage, especially against the Lord and avoid making hasty, poor decisions. All right. So I'm going to be going through a little bit of an outline that you can kind of check through, decide, kind of, you know, have your own self-reflection. I highly encourage you, if you're in the middle of this decision, write down these uh, aspects, these topics, these uh, points that I'm going to be sharing with you and, you know, make your own decision. If you can go through this, I promise you, whichever side of the spectrum you lean on, whether to sell or to keep your land, you will do so with so much more confidence. Now, you may be saying, well, Daniel, don't you want everybody to keep their land? Isn't that kind of your whole thing to make family land sustainable so trees can stay in trees? Yes, absolutely. I want every family to keep their land. But I also recognize it is not right for every family. If that land is now a liability, it is causing you stress, it is causing you turmoil, it is causing all these other areas. And especially if you're not going to be managing that land the way it needs to be managed, which we'll be talking about shortly. I would rather you sell it and get that peace, whatever that peace of mind, that peace um, in your life, removing that stressor. But I only want you to do it full of confidence, knowing it is the best decision for you and your family. So we're going to dive into it real quick. The first thing I want you to think about is your distance from your land. How far do you live from your land? Now, I can't tell you what is the right answer. I've heard families, um, actually, when I was in California, there was a wonderful speaker where she was talking about her family land was in Virginia and she lived in California. I don't know much further away you can get in the United States than those two distances of having your family land literally on the East Coast and then literally living on the West Coast. And so that distance needs to be taken into consideration, though, because for some folks, that is just going to be way too much to handle. That is going to be way too far. You're not going to be able to enjoy it. And it's going to just be something that's long lost in the distance that you never actually check up on. Now, in her case, she says she visits the family land regularly. They used to do all these yearly annual family retreats. And so it gave her that constant connection. It was something she looked forward to. So that distance did not matter. But to some folks, you do need to really consider how far away do I live from the land? How is that going to make managing it more difficult? Do I still have connections? Do I still go there regularly? I've had some um, family members come and say, we have a piece of family land in Mississippi, but no one in the family lives in Mississippi anymore. Now they could be maybe three hours down the road and no one lives in that, uh, like right over the border anymore, or they could be several states away. The exact number of distance doesn't matter. What matters is how often are you going to visit? Is it going to be kind of a strain on your life, on your family situations, um, or whatever it may be that that distance is just too much? Or do you live on site? Do you live right next to the property? In that case, it probably makes a lot more sense. It's a lot easier to handle that, okay, we're going to keep this land because I literally live on it. I literally live right behind it or down the road from it, down the county from it. But 
taking into consideration your distance will help put it in perspective of, am I going back to this land? Am I going to be able to adequately manage it? Are there any ties that are keeping me going there? Another example is my husband has a family farm in Alabama, which is six hours from us. And we go visit this farm every Thanksgiving. We're actually going to be packing up this Friday to head over there. And all of the family on that side of um, his family come and we have Thanksgiving. We do an annual uh, family football thing, just the whole nine yards. And we stay there the entire week. And so although it is a hassle for us (laughs) to try to manage a farm six hours away, there is family ties that keep us coming back along with that family inheritance, that um, pride of, you know, being a part of that community. That time distance isn't nearly as big of a factor for us and we are willing to work around it. So that's going to be my first question for you is how far are you from the land and is it reasonable? Is it manageable to try to stay connected with the land wherever you're at okay and only you will be able to give the right answer some people will say one hour is too far and some people will say 30 minutes is too far some people will say eight hours a whole plane ride it doesn't really matter it only matters what is too far from you or what is close enough for you all right the second question is acreage how much acreage is on this land all right now you've heard me talk about small acreage problems versus you know uh, appropriate number for forest management and that number tends to be around that 40 acre mark if you have less than 40 acres in regards to forest management in the southeast you are considered a small landowner challenge now i will also say i'm only talking about land that's 10 acres and more if you have less than 10 acres in my own personal definition you have a large yard Does that mean you can't do anything with it? Absolutely not. I would want you to um, do whatever your heart's desire that is capable, that you're willing to put in the effort. But in terms of when I'm talking about family lands and forest lands, I'm talking 10 acres to 40 acres is what's considered a small landowner. And that is how I used to define it in the Southeast. And so if you have this small acreage, it just means that things can be a little bit more difficult to actually get operations done, to try to manage, to try to diversify and create these different maybe revenue streams or these different habitat diversity ecosystems it's just more challenging because you don't have as much to work with as someone that has uh, a larger amount of land so what is the acreage that you are trying to manage is it small is it a medium amount you know that 40 to say 250 we're going to call that medium and then we'll say larger anything larger than 250 acres you have a larger tract now, again, I don't tend to use the words small and big and medium that often. I like to prefer to use numerical values because, again, in our own perspectives, what I may think is a lot of land, someone else may think really isn't that difficult, isn't that much in comparison. I usually will ask this question in a lot of my workshops is how much land do you have? And for me, it's always so funny because they will use words like, oh, I really don't have that much, you know, and then they'll spit out a word like 500 acre track here, a 300 acre track there, uh, 250 acres tracks in this county. And you add that all up and they got over a thousand acres. Now, someone that only has 40 acres here, a thousand acres is a lot of land. But to them, I guess, especially in comparison to what their grandparents probably had and it slowly dwindled down, it's really not that much to them anymore. And if you compare it maybe to the other land holdings around them, to them, it's not a whole lot of land. 
Now, on the flip side, I've also heard in those very same introductions of I've inherited all this land. I really don't know what to do with it. It's way more than I've ever had. And they'll use, you know, I got 40 acres. I got 50 acres. We can see that our emotions can be very, very similar despite what the numerical acreage amount is. And so that's why I need you to determine how much acreage is there to make it worthwhile. And that compounded with the distance factor will start to make things a little bit more clear. So for example, you live eight hours away, but it's 500 acres. It might be worth trying to, you know, get the resources, get a consultant out there to help you regularly manage to go out and visit that land way more often compared to you live eight hours away and it's only 20 acres and it's especially near an urban sprawl that's really developing. I'm not saying that 20 acres isn't worth trying to keep in trees. I'm just saying it's going to be a lot more challenging to get work done and you need to think about what you're willing to do and keep um, and try to manage. So what is the acreage that you have there and how far are you from the distance? All right, those two things. Now, number three is your kind of lifestyle. Do you want to actively manage it or do you want to be more of a passive landowner? Again, no right or wrong answer, but you need to be very realistic and honest with yourself. If you want to be an active manager, depending on what you have on what you can do, of course, um, you are going to be trying to put your hands or at least keep things rolling fairly regularly. You know, you're going to be keeping tabs every single year, maybe every other year, again, depending on your acreage and how much work is actually needed to do on the property. Because this isn't something that you're going to be going and trying to get something done every single day, every single week, with the exception if you live on site and you have a good amount of land and you plan on doing all that work yourself. But all in all, do you want to be a relatively active manager? Now, active managers will yield greater results and expectations. You usually will have uh, better, higher quality products, more volume, better habitat, because you are intentionally managing and putting intentional operations and practices into play to cultivate this vision, this forested landscape, this diversity factor out there, compared to the passive landowner who appreciates the land. We'll do some management work because we're agreeing here, if you're listening to this podcast, that management is important. Working your land is important. So we're moving past that, that you're not going to not do anything, but you're not going to be nearly as intense. Maybe you're not going to be regularly prescribed burning. Perhaps you have longer time frames between your timber harvest. Um, you're just not going to be doing something all the time. You're okay with being more passive. You planted La Bali for a reason because you heard they grew well and they really didn't need that much extra work. Perfectly fine. That just means you're going to be a lot more hands off and you may not get as higher quality yield of products or volume. You may not have as ideal hunting habitat or ecosystem diversity out there. Not saying that it's not good. It's just not going to be as intentional or maybe create uh, quite, <laughs> quite that vision that you have in your mind's eye. Again, nothing wrong with that, but let's be realistic. You don't want to be a passive landowner and then expect to get the same quality poles as someone that's been very actively and intentionally managing it. So how active do you want to be in this management process? Compound that with your distance and your acreage. And you can see here where we're starting to ball rolling of how much work are you willing to put into keeping this land in the family? 
we have a tendency to not even think about all the work that needs to go into land until we are thrusted into this position, this responsibility to actually manage it. Now you got property taxes, you got property boundary lines you have to pay attention to. If you have roads, you have road maintenance. If you got any type of uh, wetlands or streams you need to consider along with these operations and maintenance. Do you have a timber harvest you're looking to do? Then you need to make sure you have reforestation in mind. And again, we can see where maybe a little bit of anxiety is starting to build up where you are feeling overwhelmed. And if you are in that moment right now and I'm stressing you out, let's just take a breather. Just breathe in and breathe out. And then let's look back at our page and we're going to look at it from more non-bias, logical eyes. Okay. Be honest. What season of life are you also in right now? That also may determine how active you can actually realistically participate with your land. If you're in a season of life like me where you got three young kids and you're starting to really get into those after school activities and you are just feel like you are completely overwhelmed between school drop off, homework, reading, cooking class, soccer class, t-ball, speech therapy, all of the things. You may be like, you know what? I would like to actively manage, but it's just not the season right now. I need to be more hands off for the season of life. And that's perfectly okay too. Again, be realistic. Or perhaps are you in your retirement years and you're like, I really want to be more engaged. I don't mind going back regularly. I want to be more connected to the land and I don't mind doing things slow because I want to do a lot of the work. I want to go out there and I'm retired and I'm capable of doing that. That's perfectly okay too. Other side of the coin, you're retired. You're like, I just want to relax. I don't want to have to do any more manual work. I don't want to have to do these long trips. I just want to enjoy this season that I've worked so hard for up until now. Again, no right or wrong answers here. We're all in different seasons and you do need to determine if the season is kind of a long-term permanent, perhaps looking uh, looking, looking view, point of view, or if it's just a temporary pause. All right. So what is your lifestyle like? What season are you in? Do you want to actively or passively manage along with your acreage? How much is, you know, worthwhile and how far away are you from the land? And the last thing, which is kind of a first thing and a last thing all at once, but I put it at the end because this can be more or less the deal breaker for you. And I didn't want the deal breaker to be the very first thing we go into, but the beneficiaries, who is next in line after you? Okay. So I started off this whole podcast saying that you've just inherited this land and you are trying to decide to sell it or keep it. All right. So you may not even be thinking about down the road, which part two and part three, we will be talking about, um, you know, those next generations. And so I'll be switching up the point of view a little bit, but for your point of view right now, you've just inherited, you do need to consider after you, we're not immortal. We all die at some point. So who's going to be the beneficiaries moving forward? Do you have kids or do you not have kids? Uh, do you have nieces and nephews that you would want to pass it on to? This obviously can be a huge decision. It can be, I'm not going to say a dead end, um, but it's something to consider. I've worked with both sides of the fence. Those that have one kid and multiple kids who are like, I definitely want to pass this on to them. I've had family say, I don't 
want to pass this on to my kids. They have no interest in the family land. They all live all over the United States. They are not coming back home, and I do not want them fighting over this land. So just because you might have kids, you might be assuming, well, of course, then I would keep it because I have kids I'm going to pass it on to. That's not necessarily so. You do need to think through of your kids, their responsibilities of what you want to pass on to them. Even though I know you've just inherited it, you also take that into consideration. Is Are they someone that is going to want to uphold this family legacy or are you passing on some stress, some strife, some tension, um, uh, uh, liability, essentially? Again, no right or wrong answer. Just be very realistic here. And if you either don't have kids or you don't have kids who have any interest in the land, it sounds like selling the land, maybe not now, but at some point is probably going to be the best option for you. And we're going to be diving into, you know, the hows and who's of that in just a moment, I promise you. But I wanted to bring up Matthew 25 verses 14 through 30, which these are verses I talk about all the time. Um, it's probably one of my favorite parables. I don't really know why I'm just continuously drawn to this, but if you're not familiar, if this is your first podcast with me, uh, the parable that I'm referencing here is the, the, um, the parable of the talents or the loan money or the, the gold bags of however your Bible might be translating it too. But essentially Jesus is talking about a man who gives his servants, three servants, different amounts of money to manage while he's away or different amounts of talents, which essentially is money, um, while he's away. And two of them go and they make more money. They make that money that they've been handled and it grows. And the third one buries it in the ground. Okay. And this is the person we're going to be really focusing in on here. And um, again, I highly encourage you if you are just kind of getting into this podcast and you're wondering why am I so obsessed with this parable? Why do I always bring this up? Uh, check out a few of the other podcasts and a couple of my other programs. I definitely dig much deeper into this. But for now, we're going to be talking about that last servant, the one who buried into the ground. And I'm going to be referencing verses 24 through 27 and really hitting on 27. So I'm going to read that real quick. Then the man who received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Again, I said I wanted to focus on verse 27, so I'm going to read that for you one more time. Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. The way I'm interpreting all of this and the way that it definitely speaks to me is that you have this responsibility that you've inherited and it's not ours. And that's how I look at our land. Our land is not ours. You've been handed this responsibility. Now, the third one did not do anything with it. He didn't necessarily hurt the money. He didn't lose the money. He just didn't do anything with it. And the guy looked at him as a poor steward of that resource. He should have handed it off to somebody else. And that's kind of how I look at the whole keep or sell your land scenario. If you decide to keep your land, you need to make sure you are stewarding it. You are managing it. Even if you're on a temporary pause, you have those intentions to manage it responsibly because it's not just your land, it's God's land. And it's our responsibility to work it appropriately for all different types and goals and purposes. But to keep land and then do absolutely nothing with it 
is one of the worst things that you could possibly do. And that's exactly how I read what the the owner, when he comes back to that third servant and says, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, it would have received back with interest. It did nobody any good to not be managed, to not be worked, to not grow in some type of capacity. And so if you're in that scenario where like, I just cannot manage it appropriately. I do not want to manage it appropriately. It is causing way too much stress. It is too much, whatever it is, fill in the blank. There are no hard feelings there. Now make sure you're not doing this like in the, in the height of all your emotions after all this. I want you to take some time and make sure that's why I gave you those first three answers or considerations first. So you can think through this very logically, very um, calmly and not make a haste and rash decision. But if you do not believe you could be a good steward, and especially if you don't have maybe any beneficiaries, it's logical then you're going to sell the land. The land will be sold either under your own terms or at your death, which is a little morbid, but it's the truth. So if you come to that conclusion, let's talk about how do you go about selling your land? How can you think things through? How can you manage now, perhaps, in a way to prepare for it? Because just because you've just decided that you are going to sell your land, it doesn't mean you have to put it on the market next week, which I think we kind of have built up in our minds that if we have a very immediate decision to keep it forever or to sell it now, and it's not that way. You can keep it for a little while and then decide your end game is to sell it. All right. And if you've decided to keep it now, it's always okay to change your mind later. Life changes. Things change. Our situations may change our, all of our answers here. Okay. So your decision that you're making right now, maybe perhaps after listening to this podcast does not have to be a permanent decision. Okay. I've worked with plenty of women, um, a small handful, at least that I know about that, didn't have beneficiaries or were not planning on passing it on to their children because of the reasons I had already explained. The children had absolutely no interest in coming back to the family land or working that family land. And so we went through our trainings and programs where they decided, how am I going to manage this um, either to my death or to what point? And we kind of talk about all these different scenarios. Maybe you just manage it for the next 10 years and then decide to sell it where you can enjoy those retirement years. Remember those years we talked about? Um, or perhaps you just kind of make in your estate plan what your wishes are at your death, what you wish for your children to do, the, the executor, whoever it may be, give them very instructions, um, very detailed instructions of what you want to happen with this land. That doesn't necessarily mean it will get passed on to them. So what are your considerations or what can you think about when deciding who and how to sell it? All right. And I got four quick um, options or ideas for you to kind of formulate in your head. Number one, conservation organizations are probably the number one thing I hear about of, I want to sell it, but I want to donate it, or I want to sell it to a conservation organization. Conservation easement, perhaps, is the word you're using. And that's perfectly valid. There are tons of organizations, and they all have very specific aspects characteristics that they are looking for. And so what I will say with that is your land may not be a good fit for everybody. Okay. And we, again, we need to be very honest with that. A lot of them are either looking for large amounts of land to preserve 
or what's considered significant, meaning you are maybe on a river, you have some endangered species, you have something very special, not just special in our own heart, but actually ecologically special about your tract of what's going on out there. Again, each organization has slightly different um, eligibility requirements and things that they are looking for. So if you are interested in donating it or selling it to a, a conservation organization, figure out which one aligns most with your values. And then what I would do is start actually taking management steps to cultivate the best land for them, for you, but also for them. And so, for example, if you wanted to donate to the Audubon Society, then it would be wise for you to start taking management steps to create the most diversity of birds out there on your landscape. So when it comes time, you know, you start having those conversations, it comes time to actually donate it either at your death or before your death um, to this organization. Your land is more or less in a much better setting for them to be able to take. It may be eligible now, and it's a much higher ranking possibility. Will that work all the time? No. But you can see here how your pre-planning, your preparations, having that end goal of who you want to give it to can help steward and guide your management decisions along the way. Number two is universities. Okay. If you're near, um, a forestry school, they won't always take it. But if you have a really uh, big heart for helping the next generation of foresters, natural resource professionals, donating it to a university for them to be able to use as a research force is a great option and a great opportunity to kind of maybe continue those values and help those students along the ways, as well as provide some financial sustainability for your alma mater. Now, how you go about doing that, you'd have to contact your university that you are interested in. Um, and again, they may say no, depending on what their eligibilities are. Number three, you can actually donate your land or your timber to churches. And there's a new organization, especially in Southeast Georgia, called Christian Timber. And what they're doing is essentially looking at land and timber as a good and wise stewardship opportunity for ministry, as well as to support different Christian ministries locally as well as um, nationally, I believe. I think it's mostly locally. But depending on where you're at, you may have these different options to donate to your particular ministry of choice or even your church to help them create this financial sustainability revenue wheel, as well as also being just a good steward of God's lands. And then number four is the most common approach. What everyone always thinks about too is just selling it to somebody. You can sell it to individuals or you can sell it to families. Now, what I would challenge you to, um, what I would challenge you though to think about is not just selling it to somebody. Think about it in this perspective, which I think will give you a lot more peace is that you're selling it to the next family legacy. You're not getting rid of your own family legacy. You are just changing names. That family legacy is now being started with somebody else. It's either helping someone else's family start their very first family land legacy. They are going to be the first generation with big goals and visions for their great-grandchildren. Or you perhaps are helping expand a family legacy. I think when we put it in those terms, in those perspectives, selling the land is a little less guilt trip because when we sell our lands, I know we probably beat ourselves up a good bit of what am I doing? I'm giving up, I'm quitting. And we don't have to do that. If you just shift your perspective a little bit, recognizing after you've gone through those four 
characteristics I talked about, distance, acreage, lifestyle, or intentional management, and then beneficiaries. You go through that very logically with your eyes wide open, very honestly. When we look at selling after that point, we can change our perspective of this is actually the best stewardship duty I can do because we do not want to be like that third servant who just buried the gold in the ground when we should have given it to the bank so at least it could have gained interest. The land needs to be worked. We can sell it to a new family for their first generation legacy. We can sell it to somebody to expand their legacy or we can give it to different organizations that really align with our values and what we want our land to help support. If you're in this situation, I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear how you've answered these questions and what what thoughts go through your mind while you are battling the whole, do I keep the land, do I sell the land? How are you making these decisions? I would love to hear from you. So give me a shout out on social media. You can find me at Land and Ladies. Give me an email, landandladies at gmail.com or just leave a comment um, wherever these podcasts that you're listening to is at. Stay tuned for part two and part three, where we will be talking about to subdivide or not subdivide our land, and then what you actually need to pass on the land. So stay tuned. Every Wednesday, I will be bringing this embruted podcast to you. Until next time.